what's this, uh, what's this Wesley stuff Marty keeps talking about on September the 7th? That this topic of universal offer of salvation, which is not universalism, but it is that Wesley believed that the solution to the human condition had to match the problem of the human condition. Universal sin, universal depravity required there to be some universal solution. And that prevenient grace is based in the nature of God in that God truly loves the world. I think we're up to speed now. Wesley believed that the presence of the prevenient grace made the offer universal and, I would say, real. I wrote my notes here. Let me read this to you. He said, because Wesley and others had such a high view of the love of God and that there was a universal problem of sin and depravity, God would be prompted, not required, it doesn't, it doesn't have to, but God would be prompted by his sense of holy love to provide a universal solution. So Jacob Arminius and John Wesley believe in free grace to everyone through the matter of prevenient grace. Okay? Yes. Okay, good, good question. Uh, what is it for the recording? Stuart is saying what a great job I'm doing. And uh, <laughs> I control the recorder up here, see. Uh, what would that be in contrast? That's a great question. Um, short answer, Stuart, is that. And again, prevenient grace is, is the grace that God does to prepare us to awaken us, we talked about last week, to our need and then gives and excites us to the response of responding. In the Reformed tradition, it would be electing grace that, God, let me back up. There are three graces in, in Reformed theology. I'm going to mispronounce one of them. Common grace is a little bit like prevenient grace in that it is everywhere. And it is basically when Jesus said, for God lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. Common grace is that God kind of wants to sustain the universe and keep human beings alive and, and those sort of things. So there, there is common grace that Calvin in the Reformed tradition would say. The second one is evanescent. E, I can spell E-V-A-N-S-C-E-N-T, evanescent grace. Now, this is unusual. Uh, not a lot of people talk about it, but it's in his Institutes, Volume 3. That evanescent gr grace is the kind of grace that the, the reprobates or the lost get for a while and think they're saved and bear some evidence of that. Loving God, seeking spiritual growth, um, producing some fruit in their life. But that kind of grace is then removed. Um, and Calvin said in order to increase their damnation. So they're given something for a while. Now, this is my interpretation. It could be uncharitable here, but, but it is sort of faking them out to make them think they're okay when they're not okay, and then it's removed. Because the third kind of grace is electing grace. Electing grace is that this is the grace that is given to all the people that before the foundation world God decided would be saved and would be withheld or 
Calvin would say, or he overlooks the others that don't get it. So electing grace is the grace that is irresistible. You cannot not take it. And so it saves you. Prevenient grace is the grace that God extends. It is resistible. You can say no. And it leads to salvation. But it's not a guarantee. So there are these kinds of distinctions that are made. Wesley would say prevenient grace leads to justifying grace. And then justifying grace leads to sanctifying grace. So it's a kind of a technical difference, but it, it really is different. So I, thank you. That's a good question because in the Reformed tradition, there is the notion that some people were elected uh, to be saved before they ever existed. And by that, they will receive uh, electing grace. And those who have not been elected cannot receive it no matter what because they weren't elected. Heard that? Pretty. Uh, and Wesley, Wesley uh, often said that that doctrine, that idea, uh, for him, uh, uh, did too much damage to the character of God. It, he said, I, I, "I just can't. I can't. I can't accept it because it does too much damage to think that God would create creatures in order for them to suffer for eternity in hell, having never done a thing." Um, he said, I, I just, it, it's too hard for me to, so he, he and Arminius and other, and others, uh, uh, there are other scholars, uh, I'm trying to, a couple of other, uh, the guys, uh, Grotheus, uh, from, uh, the Netherlands with, uh, with, uh, Arminius and others said, no, can't, can't go there. And we're going to see why here in a bit. Uh, then, uh, pervenient grace enlightens one understanding of their circumstances, and Wesley would say, creation does that. You know, Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Psalm 19.1. John 1.9 says that when Jesus came into the world, he was enlightening every man who was coming into the world. John 1.9. And then Romans 1.19, referring that that which is known about God is clear. The creation makes it clear uh, that God's prevenient grace is he's revealing himself. He's, he's letting people know that he's here. Now, that's not enough, right? Uh, in fact, uh, this is what we would call general revelation. This is the, the notion of general revelation, that creation, conscience, the, the things we see kind of reveal a creator, but it's, I mean, it's not enough to save anybody, uh, but it, it's part of that. And so it has an, and we have an initial desire uh, to uh, please God. I think there's another uh, thing here, and it's not on your outline, but I'm, I'm going to just uh, have you turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of John. There's another area of prevenient grace, I think, and I think Wesley and others uh, have commented on this or this idea that, that in John, John, I wish I'd have brought my real Bible. John 16 here, when Jesus refers uh, to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he's talking to his disciples. He's leaving, and he's saying, now the Spirit, he's going to lead you into all truth. He's talking to us, he's going to lead you into all truth. But he also has, the Holy Spirit has this uh, ministry or feature. Somebody read for us 
some uh, some read uh, sixteen eight uh, through uh, eleven. Out loud. <laughs> and when he has come, yep. he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to the, my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Yeah. So here's an understanding of prevenient grace of enlightenment. What, what is the Spirit's role or job here with respect to the world. Verse 8. He will what? Yeah. I want to ask you to consider something here. Um, took, took a little time over the years of dental research on this word convict. Uh, comes from the Greek word elegko, E-L-E-G-C-H-O. And uh, in some of the lexicons and in some of the ways it's used, it really has the notion. When we hear the word convict, it's kind of the idea it's over. You've been convicted, right? That this word has lots of possibility of being convinced. Convince. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will convince the world of sin, of righteousness. I, I think the way we used to use it in church was, man, I really feel convicted about this. What we really meant was, I really feel convinced about this. I'm really convinced this is wrong. I'm convinced this should not be going on. Did you all hear that when you were a kid? You know, I'm really under, he's really under conviction. Well, that means he's really getting un, coming under convincing that what he's doing is incorrect. And Wesley and others would, I think, make the argument that this prevenient grace is part of also the work of the Holy Spirit to bring the world to this understanding of convincing them that the world is guilty with regard to these matters in this uh, uh, understanding of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And so this word, the convincing, not simply convicting, not just wanting people to feel like they're wrong, but to bring them to the point of convincing them something needs to change. That would be, in my judgment, I think in Wesley's, an aspect of prevenient grace. Again, Randy Maddox said this idea that convinc- uh, prevenient grace is the grace that convinces me of my need and then gives me the desire to respond. So, this idea here on that. Uh, so, prevenient, here we go. I'll just keep working through this. Prevenient grace is the key to Wesley's thought. This grace is extended to all and requires some response of cooperation. Prevenient grace is not irresistible. Wesley even, um, in some of his writings, will write about how people should be cautious You know, I think there's at times when human beings are so filled up with hubris that whenever God deals with us or responds to us or something that we sort of feel like we're in the driver's seat. I'll do that later. I'll wait. I got time. And Wesley would always warn people about this, that in those Initial pleadings and those 
kind of drawings of the Holy Spirit of prevenient grace to not play around with this. And that, that makes a lot of sense to, to say that God in his pleadings, God in his prevenient grace of drawing us and convincing of us our need, that to be flippant about that. Uh, my dad told me he was a, my dad was a really rough guy before he became a Christian. Uh, and he told me, he said, he remembers the first time he sinned. I don't. I think I did it too many times. So <laughs> he remembers. And then he said he remembered. He said, Cliff, I always noticed this, that as I did it more, my conscience didn't quite bother me quite as much. And the more I did it, the less it bothered me. And he said, at some point, it didn't bother me at all. And, and, and Wesley would warn people about that to say, Realize that God in his prevenient grace is giving you this great privilege to respond to him. You should not play around with it. You shouldn't, you shouldn't just dismiss it. And so this idea of this prevenient grace, it requires some cooperation on our part. Uh, I had a friend, you know, was struggling with some stuff and we were talking about it. And, and they said, you know, Cliff, I, I got one prayer I've been praying God, make me willing to be willing. I'm struggling with this. I don't, I don't want to do it. But God, make me willing to be. That's kind of recognizing this matter about don't be arrogant about God's grace. Don't be arrogant about God's pleadings with us. But we sometimes kind of get full of ourselves and Wesley would warn people to say, don't pray to God that he will keep you sensitive and alert and aware. We, we've just almost, my thought here, we, we, we've almost you know, kind of done what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called about in his great book, The Cost of Discipleship. There's a, it's just cheap grace. It's just kind of when I'm ready. I'll, I'll let you know, God, when I'm ready. And so it, 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 it requires some cooperation it requires that. And I'll tell you why I think that uh, in this cooperation of grace. Grace is not something, again, Wesley, it's not irresistible and it's not going to force you. But I'd like for you in your Bibles to turn to 1 Corinthians real quick. I want you to look at this. about It requires some cooperation. It requires some cooperation. 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> and I'm going to read here and follow along with me. <clears throat> Uh, in chapter 15, uh, Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you that you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to what I've preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Hmm. Now, he's, he's talking about the gospel here to say, you know, unless you believed in vain. In other words, this was just a temporary thing with you. This was just playing around. That, that he's saying, I, I'm, I'm encouraging you, reminding you that you hold fast, that you don't receive the grace of God in vain. Look over here at verse 10 of the same, same chapter. Paul says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. See, this speaks of cooperation. This, this speaks of some level of my cooperation here 
with him. I'll give you some other verse. We'll move on. But 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Same idea. The grace of God in vain. Galatians 4, 11. These are, these are just verses in that section to say that in some ways, prevenient grace requires some cooperation. It doesn't just come on you and force you to do what you're supposed to do. It asks you to cooperate. Okay? Now, this universal salvation is also based in the work of Christ that Wesley sees, this universal salvation. Uh, the, I wrote in my notes here, the assertion that uh, salvation is universal uh, has in some ways been a long debate uh, whether who can, who can uh, be a part of it and who can't. Uh, and this comes back to this notion of Jesus' work, uh, if you will, so I want to share with you a few verses here that I want to suggest you show that, that the work of Jesus is for everybody. Go to the book of Hebrews. I got you going live. Go to the book of Hebrews and go to chapter 2. And um, this is a speaking about the ministry of Jesus um, it begins back in chapter 2, verse 1, about paying attention. Verse 5, it's not to angels that God subjected the world, but to human beings. And then here in verse 9, he says, we don't see everything that's subject to, subject to him, but verse 9, but we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with honor and glory because of his suffering death, so that by the grace of God, he might what? Taste death for everyone. And Jesus, that imagery, tasted it. Doesn't mean he just rolled it around in his mouth. Some authors would suggest, because this same word is used in Hebrews 6, when it refers to those who've fallen away, they tasted the heavenly gift. They say, well, they just rolled it around. They didn't. This is this evescent grace that Calvin talked I say, if you're going to look at the way the word taste in Hebrews is used, you need to come back here to nine, uh, 2 9 and say, did Jesus just taste death or did he die? He died. He didn't just taste it. That's a euphemism for saying that he took it within himself. So Jesus died for who? Everyone. Everyone. And then this work and I, so now go to 2 Peter. Here's another one of my favorite verses in this uh, particular discussion. 2 Peter chapter 2. I remember the first time I read this, it just about put me on the floor. Somebody read uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 and just read here. Uh, just, just go to, through uh, just verse 1. We'll look at the rest of the time. But 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Somebody got that? Read it for us. <clears throat> but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there were false teachers among you. They, were secretly, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. Yeah. What does it say about these false prophets? What did Jesus do? Bought. Bought them. He said, now be, be careful. There are going to be false prophets coming around. 
They're going to be, they're going to be in just like before, teaching destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Never saw that. Yeah. Who did Jesus purchase? The false prophet. That's what it says. The Greek word agora here is the word that's used for the marketplace in the Gentile city where people buy and sell, where you buy things. And so the notion that Jesus just died for a certain group, I don't think can handle this when it says in Hebrews 2, he tasted death for everybody. He died, if you will, or bought the false prophets that are denying him, see? But he still bought them. So this work of Jesus, I'll just give you this, Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. Bring it to all people. <clears throat> now this, this is where there's a, you know, a little bit of a rub here that in some traditions, and I'm not being negative, I'm just saying there is the sense in which that if Jesus died for everyone and everyone doesn't receive it, that that's somehow dishonoring to Jesus. I understand that. I don't agree with it. I think God is so extravagant in his love. He's willing to do that. To say, you don't dishonor me by your unwillingness to choose any more then you dishonor me because you choose because I made you. In Reformed theology, you choose because God makes you. Right? How is it dishonoring to say it's dishonoring to God because he offers the salvation to you, but you don't choose it? How is it not equally dishonoring to say, God, you chose it, not really, you didn't really, God made you choose it. Is that any more honoring? <laughs> Doesn't seem like it to me. And so this idea of choosing based on, again, the prevenient grace of God because of his willingness to care and offer for us what he has provided for us in the person of Jesus. That makes sense? Here's just some passages that I would say to suggest this universal offer of salvation of prevenient grace is rooted in some of these passages here. Thoughts? Questions? Comment? Is this new? Is this, maybe this is old. Maybe you're bored. <laughs> huh. I'm kind of rolling around. I'm, I'm, and over the last week or so, I've also had the thought of you know, the Jews were God's original <laughs> chosen people. And right. Counter-Calvinism, West, you know, how do they <clears throat> work? You know, we're, we're thinking about the Gentiles. But, yeah. You know, how does the Jewish <clears throat> figure into all of that? Yeah. And his election. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a great question of the idea of where is that still? That, you know, that is really part of the reason Paul... Uh, struggles and works through Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, and I would say, as you read it, it's not individual salvation. This is groups, Gentiles, Jews. Um, that, that 9, 10, 11, when he says in 9, 
my heart's breaking. I mean, I'm, tra- I'm bar- my heart's breaking because of my kinsmen. They have the covenants, the temple, the law. He can't figure out in his own head, how is it they aren't coming in? Now, some of them are. That's a fact, but not massively. And he's grieving 9, 10, and 11 of how, but still shows that the entrance for the Jew will be the same as the Gentile by faith in the Messiah. And, uh, but yeah, that's, that's an important issue there. Even though God chose to work through the Israelites, Mm -hmm. we all came from the same tree, Mm -hmm. to speak. Adam and Eve. We're all siblings. Yeah. It's like having two siblings, but one sibling moved over to Iowa. Yeah. Nothing against yeah. Now, the thoughts and opinions of this teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church at elder leadership. But I think one of the things that bears out in Scripture is that Israel misunderstood what it meant to be chosen. When God called Abraham and said, I've, I've chosen you that you are to be a blessing to all the nations. I think Israel got the idea that we're special in that we can kind of live or do what we want to do because we're special. Instead of we've been chosen for a job. And that job is to bless all the peoples of the earth. That was the initial statement to Abraham. And many of them failed to do that because they thought it was about them instead of about him. So, it this universal salvation is also based on another thing. Yes. I've got one quick question. Sure. Last week, um, you said that John Wesley denied libertarian free will. Yes. So what I'm having a difficult time understanding is that he believed in free will and grace. What, what was the bone he was picking with libertarian free will? Do you think they were kind of decanonized? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'd say it this way. That Wesley is un. Wesley is not optimistic about, at all about human nature. That it unassisted is going to go right down the drain. And that prevenient grace is the way that God navigates this to be able to appeal or to woo them. Because left to themselves, you know, Romans uh, 3.9 says, no one seeks after God. They've all turned aside. So if human beings have libertine free will, and that's it, they're not turning. They're not coming to God. And so from the very beginning, the desire, the ability to turn is based in prevenient, God's active prevenient grace for them. So does that prevenient grace, does it take the person to a neutral position or more than that? Yeah, Wesley said, and I think I thought I said this last week, but it, that, it, that it, uh, it's not a free will, it's a freed will. That in prevenient grace, I'm... I'm, I'm all of a sudden, by God's operation, aware of my need. You know, I think probably all of us at some level, at some point, came to the point in our life and went, wow, I got a problem here. What is that? God's prevenient grace. That left to myself, I'm, the scripture says we're blinded by the God of this world. 
our hearts are turned away. So it's grace from God that has to operate to free us enough to see who we are and, and have some level of response. So it's all great. That's the funny thing. People talk that Wesley uh, is the religion of free will. No, he's the, he's the religion of grace. Without prevenient grace, no one will turn to God because they will never see their condition or understand it. And so God's prevenient grace works through creation, through conscience, through the Scripture, all these different ways God is reaching, drawing, calling through the Holy Spirit. Is that... Yeah, I guess my... I mean, I guess it depends on how you would define free will. Yeah. Um, you know, even back to the Reformation, yeah. the way they would define it, what I've read is that it wasn't a human creature doing things outside of the will of God, but you, know, you, could, you could hold... They would hold to the position that God did make the first initial move, mm-hmm. but then... Believer was neutral, was like Burger King. You had to reject. Yeah. Uh, it was the opposite of the terminism. Yeah. Not that there wasn't a mover. Yeah. Was, you know, called to the. Yeah. Believer. Erasmus, but the, and the Roman Catholic tradition is sort of what you're talking about, that, that through the means of grace and other things, God is able to sort of break that out. But, but Luther is dead on that the will is in bondage. And that's part of John 9. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And you can't break out. I wish I would have heard. I just say, I grew up in the church of God. I wish I would have known a little bit more that God's grace was actually operating in helping me to have a desire. It felt like it was all on me to decide. I wish I would have had some sense to know, you know what? God is working, Cliff. His grace is the thing that's awakened you here and to celebrate that. Yeah. Similar to Adam's free will? Similar to Adam's by prevenient grace? No, I don't think so. The question is, is this prevenient grace then making us as free as Adam was? I don't think so. Because we're still fallen, if you will. We're not in that original righteousness situation that Adam was in. Is that? Which is fascinating, too, in that question. That other thing is that we've sort of bought into the idea that, that human beings sin because they have a sinful nature. But why did Adam and Eve sin? They didn't have a sinful nature doesn't take a sinful nature to sin. It requires a choice. God or not God. <laughs> and if you're locked in because of the bondage that you're into not God. Yeah. This may be a simple question, but when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I'm thinking about something. Uh-huh. If I'm born alcohol fetal alcohol syndrome, my, mm-hmm. I have this crazy family history that leads to psychosis or how do you describe those things as not being of one's nature? I'm not mm-hmm. I mean, am I, I'm born I'm born uh, 
predisposed to alcoholism. Mm -hmm. I'm born predisposed to mm -hmm. aggression. I'm whatever, whatever family dysfunction mm -hmm. from Adam has led to down. Yeah. But we don't say that's a sinful nature. Mm -hmm. How would you differentiate those things? I, I would say that, again, that, that's where I would say that this is one of the expressions of the fall of our broken humanity. That our humanity... Huh? That brokenness, sin, is not of our nature? I don't think... I don't think... I don't... Well, I don't... We talked about this other night at the table. I thought I had a better answer. <laughs> that, that, that some of those environmental issues are certainly part of the fallen, broken world that we're a part of. Now, we have this propensity toward, this tendency toward, that um, because of our sin and the sin of others, it's not just our sin that affects us, it's the sin of others that affect us. We're, to, we're in a world here that is affected by one another and their relationships with each other. That doesn't become our nature. That doesn't become the nature of humanity. Well, I think again, if I hear, if I'm understanding you, that that our humanity has to be restored through the new birth or through our coming to to the source of life. That we're not going to have life until we come to that source, and so that fallenness, that brokenness of humanity, is part of our existence. But again, you wouldn't say a child because they're they're born with some propensity because of a of a of a thing happened to the parent that they're somehow a sinner in that regard. Come back to Wesley's definition of a willful transgression where we are acting on working out of that. Hey, Cliff. Yeah. I just might add that you may be influenced by some of those things, but it doesn't mean that you're predestined to be that way because yeah. you still have a choice. And I'll say that well, I've, experience. Yeah. Because, you know, all the things that you mentioned, alcoholism, mm -hmm. Psychological issues. Mm -hmm. But and again, we talk about prevenient grace, whether we know it's God's grace or not, God is working to help us to give us some freedom to operate because of His grace. This prevenient grace that's universal, that's always out there to help free people from some of those actions, activities, or things that have happened to them. Does that satisfy? Probably not. I'm still working on it. Sorry. It's a big issue. Let me work through this last one real quick. This universal it accounts for the language of the New Testament. What I'm going to refer to here, and I'm going to give you just a lot of them. You can look them up uh, later. Uh, part of John Wesley's life, uh, when he went to in his mission work, uh, he went to Georgia, came to the United States of America, uh, and worked with the British colonists and with the Native Americans. And part of his emphasis or part of his interest was to be able to bring the gospel to people that never heard or people that need to respond. And part of that is, I think, that it accounts for the language of the New Testament. And when I say that, I mean this. I have written in my notes here, and I'm calling it this, the whosoever will language. 
Notice here in Matthew, I'll just write, write these down for you. Matthew 12, 50. Whoever does the will of my Father is my disciple. Whoever. Matthew 16, 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. Whoever. John 3, 15 and 16. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. <clears throat> Acts 2.21, and this is recorded again <clears throat> in Romans 10.13. Acts 2.21 and Romans 10.13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 1 John 4.15 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Christ, God abides in him. And these, it's just this smattering. There, there are others, this whosoever kind of language throughout the New Testament that suggests because of the work of Christ we looked at earlier. Now, the, the, um, the uh, solution that accounts for the language of this, if you will, open call, whoever will let them come. The last part of Revelation, in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and the one who is thirsty, let him come, and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. This is almost the very end of the book of Revelation, of saying, if you're, if you're thirsty, if you hear, the spirit says, come. And this is, this, this is Wesley's, uh, if you will, understanding of the, this universal nature uh, of salvation. But now what does that call for? And this is the last part. We'll have to do some more last this, this week. What this calls for, the solution calls for faith. Faith. And I want to just run through this and we'll have to pick some of that, this solution of faith. Now, the, the Greek word faith here means to believe, to trust, to rely on, to depend on, has a lot of different nuances. Uh, so when we talk about the word faith, we're talking about relying on, depending on, trusting in, all those kind of matters. And one of the things that I think is, first of all, I have this on here, yeah, that faith is an outward looking. You know, we can make faith so complicated that we try to make it something beyond what it is. Uh, A.W. Tozer is a great author, said it like this, that faith is like your eye. It sees everything but itself. I think that's an interesting image. When my faith is looking at me, and I can see me, that's not outward looking. That's inward looking. Faith is outward looking to God. It's looking to another, depending on, trusting in, relying upon another. And the only thing I can't see is me, right? that faith is outward looking. Now, one of the arguments sometimes about Wesley's theology by my good Reformed friends and people I know is that they will say that faith is a work. Have you ever heard that? That, that idea that faith is a work. Turn your Bibles to Romans 4. That faith is a work. And that's why, uh, you know, we, we get all the credit. Um, 
we're all of us Westlands, we're, we're trying to take all the credit for this. And I'd, if I hadn't believed, it wouldn't have happened. And so, you know, faith is a work. But when Paul is trying to explain about this matter about being right with God, in uh, Romans 4, he says, 4.1, What then shall we say about who, uh, what, uh, gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, see, there's the word work, okay? For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Slow down. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not accounted as a gift, but is due. And to the one who does not work. Now, what is work contrasted to in this verse, the next two words? But believes. The contrast here is between work and belief. Faith cannot be understood as a work. I'm not contributing to my salvation. I'm simply receiving it. And Paul makes this dramatic contrast here. Notice when he says, and to the one who does not work, but, contrast, does what? Believes. This is the one who is justified. I'm not contributing anything to my salvation by believing. It's like I, it, if, if somebody handed me a $100 bill, or handed like this to me, and I said, I'll take it while well, you're prideful that you contributed to this. No, I'm not. I just took the hundred. So Wesley is saying, this is, faith is not only outward, faith's not a work. I've had friends again that try to say to me, you're trying to take credit. You're trying, no, I'm not. I'm saying that in fact, faith is the very opposite of any idea of work. I'm not providing anything but simply responding. Have you heard this before? That faith is a work? That, that that's why Wesleyans are so, you know, some would say that, that Wesley's theology is that it's real man-centered because we believe. Or we say you have to believe. No. I just believe and it's not considered, I'm not working for my salvation at all. I'm just responding. That makes sense? Thought? Question? Have you heard? Okay, maybe. Maybe I'm always hanging around theological journals, so I read this all the time. So, yeah, Stuart. Have I heard faith described as this, this sort of combination or this fluid belief work? The work is a natural. Hmm. For example, I was in a conversation with somebody week and we were talking about a friend and, and he, this friend had misbehaved right? Uh-huh. And my friend commented about this other person he does he realize he's rejecting his faith hmm. based on his action. Hmm. Um, and it, it struck me because I always think faith is belief. Mm -hmm. But then I'm thinking, no, if I'm in faith, in the flow, mm -hmm. it's a belief system. It's it to mm -hmm. my actions. That it's it's the combination of of all of that. Mm -hmm. And so, 
I'm a little uncomfortable that you're separating work way out here. I think you would say. I'm going back to this. Yeah, they're, they're, James yeah, James 2, yeah. We're, we're going to go back to that here in a second. But I, but I would say this. I think that what your scenario you're talking about is that sin and these kind of things with our faith is a crisis of faith. When I say, wait a minute, this is the situation I'm in. Do I really believe God knows what he's talking about? I don't think that's necessarily a lack of faith. That's what I call the crisis of faith. Am I, am I going to... Am I going to believe God in this particular case? Sometimes you do, sometimes you blow it. But that's where the, that's where the rub is, that I'm, I'm believing, I'm trusting. I, my, my faith is, is, is here, but I'm at, I've come to a new situation now all of a sudden. What am I going to do? Do I, do I really believe? I, I've got a great, I wish I had the video clip with me, not on a, a movie called Vertical Limit. I saw a long, long time ago. It's his family that go hiking and or uh, uh, rock climbing, and a dad and a daughter and a son, and they're going up the side. And these rookies up top have problems. They start coming down and sliding down and knock the caroms out or the carabiners out, and and they're all strung out on one one uh, rope, and the dad is on the bottom. He's the experienced climber, and this carabiner keeps moving. And she can't reach it. She keeps trying to go to it like that. And he finally says this, you got to cut me loose. Because if I don't, we're all going to die. Two of those guys have already gone down, fallen. He said, if you don't cut me loose, we're all going to die. Now, you, you got all your life to live before you. And when I'm watching, I'm thinking, okay, here's, here's faith in this respect. I've got to trust somebody that knows more than I know about rock climbing. He's the expert. Okay, and so I have to trust someone else in this case. Second of all, I have to go against my feelings because I don't want to do this. But third, the person is in the movie has to act or they're all going to die. And I would tell my students, there are three components to this. It's believing an authority, someone that knows more than you do. It's often against what you feel and you have to act. And in the movie, they do that. And he dies. But he knows that if they don't do that, all of them are going to die right there. So faith has those components. I've got to believe someone else who's more intelligent than I am. I've got to go against sometimes what my feelings are telling me. Nobody wants to do that to their dad. And then I've got to act finally and do something about it. Maybe that's... No, it's a response to me being convinced of what needs to happen. I, I'm, not, I'm not earning anything here. God is saying, this is how I want you to live. Like, okay, I believe, I have faith. Yeah. Well, there's an old illustration from Evangelism Explosion uh-huh. that talks about faith and belief. And yeah. it's the illustration of a chair. You see a chair, <clears throat> you, know, right. you believe that chair will hold you. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I do. Faith is sitting down in the chair. You yes. Have to have that action. Yes. I'm going to end with this, and I think this will fit what you're talking about. That faith expresses itself in repentance and trust. Faith expresses itself now. It's not a work. It, 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 it looks outward, and it expresses itself like this. You know, in repentance, 
some people get confused with it. Re- repentance doesn't mean to turn around. That's the word epistrepho. That's, that's, that's another word in Greek. Epistrepho means to turn around. Metanoeo, or the, repentance means to change your mind. To what? You know, I've heard, change your mind to what? Change your mind to who's in charge. <laughs> That's called repentance. I'm no longer in charge here. Doesn't mean I don't try to take it back and don't, doesn't mean I don't sometimes do that. But if I've repented, my mind has changed about who's in charge. And then that issues forth in trust to say, okay, I'm convinced. I've got enough evidence here that if I keep running my life, I'm going to mess it up even more. And so real faith or faith expresses itself in repentance, changing the mind. I I told my students one time, I I would hate to tell you how old I was. I had, I don't think I'd earned my doctorate yet, but I had an undergrad and a master's degree in biblical studies. And I could take you back to the place on Southwest 134th when I finally said this out loud because I had to. Okay, I think I have come to the point that I realize you know how life works. <laughs> and I don't want to, t- I was teaching at Mid-America Christian University. I don't think I'd come to that place yet of saying, okay, you know, you and I've talked about this, that, that I, I think you know what you're talking about. And I'm ready to say, I'm in. So it comes in repentance and in trust to where my mind has changed. My thought processes have changed that I was in charge. And then finally, i got to finish with this. Where'd I go? Did I go the wrong one? I did, didn't I? There it is. It expresses itself in love. Real quick, uh, Wesley's favorite verse is Galatians 5.16 about the Christian life, where Paul makes a statement, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters at all, but faith working through love. The, Stuart, back to your point that, that this faith is not inactive but it's faith working through love. In fact, isn't it interesting, at least in my mind, in the Reformation, you had five what they called solas, or five you know, points of cheering. It was sola scriptura, only scripture. Sola Christus, only Christ. Sola gratia, only grace. Sola, soli deo gloria, only the glory of God. Sole fide, only faith. Nothing about love. And Wesley said they went too far. That they actually elevated faith above love. And his argument was that faith that really is expresses itself in love. And that if our faith isn't being expressed in love, Wesley would say, then you're as orthodox as the devil. 
you know, you believe. James 2, 19, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. And Wesley said you could be as orthodox as the devil by believing that, but unless it's faith working through love. Think about that. And again, I, I, I'm going to hurry up here. Think about that. Wesley understood this. What is the whole duty of human beings? You know, when the guy comes to Jesus, what, what, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor's soul. That's from Deuteronomy 6 and comes all the way up to Matthew 22. Paul says in Galatians 5.14 that the, all, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love. There are three things that remain, faith, hope, love, and the greatest of these, 1 Corinthians 13, is love. And then Wesley's Galatians 5.6, nothing matters but faith working through love. So what about that? So what? What if? What if? What if in our week this week, as we thought about this and considered it, what if we really believed that salvation was universal to everyone? What if we thought, hey, you know what? Every person I meet is a candidate. They could be. They could be a candidate for knowing Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I, I know this. I, I have a tendency, my mouth stays closed too much. <laughs> talk a lot in here, but out there. Do I believe that every person has the possibility because of the prevenient grace of God? And then last week I told you the story about Tom at the end. I want you to think about as you go through life each day this week, do we kind of keep our eyes and ears open about God's prevenient grace or where he might be operating and working with people that we know. And then, second, or that, that's kind of that first area of prevenient grace. What if, in, in, in this matter here, what if we lived our lives like our eyes do and we see everything but us in faith to say, I'm not going to try to analyze myself all week. I'm going to let my eyes and my thoughts be out on Christ that like my eye that can see everything but itself. Do you ever get like that, to where your vision or your faith gets adjusted because you're looking too close in here? Anybody but me? Yeah, it gets kind of turned in here. How about turn it out and realize that faith is outward-oriented, looking under you. I'll finish with it. Dallas Willard said this, that the greatest way to grow spiritually is to get as clear a picture as you can of Jesus before you. That's faith that's looking out. Get a clear as you can picture of Jesus. Here's my prayer. I pray almost every morning. It comes from, some of y'all are old enough to remember this, comes from the old movie Godspell. You know, I heard that thing's kind of winding back up. Has anybody heard that? Ginning back up. Heard There's a line in this. I recommend it to you to pray it. Uh, it's the song uh, Day by Day. Day by Day. And the line is this. To see you more clearly. To love you more dearly. And follow you more nearly. Day by day. That's the key. Looking out. To see you more clearly will enable me to love you more dearly. 
and I'll follow you more nearly. That's part of Wesley's understanding. Next week, we're going to deal with some other point on his understanding of salvation and the atonement.